Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the West's economic response has centered around escalating sanctions on the Russian economy designed to hinder Vladimir Putin's ability to prosecute his war. But what effect are these sanctions having on the Russian economy and war effort? Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Richard Connolly, an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and an expert on the Russian economy. Richard, welcome to the bunker. Good morning. Thank you. So, Richard, one of the more recent developments people may have heard of in terms of Western sanctions on Russia has been the G7's price cap on Russian oil. Could you please just quickly explain that for listeners? Yeah, in simple terms, the idea is is that the West will only buy Russian oil at a price set by the by the West, by those uh, countries that are importing it. Um, so at the moment, the price of oil, for instance, a barrel of Brent this morning, I think is about $95 a barrel. Under this scheme, Western countries would say, we'll only buy oil from Russia for, say, $40 a barrel. That price would be roughly reflect what um, countries would consider to be the lifting cost and any taxes that might need to be paid in Russia, um, but no more. And the idea being that by putting a cap on the amount that Western countries are prepared to pay for Russian oil, that that will reduce the oil revenues accruing to the Russian state and therefore its ability to finance the war. Now, the price cap will only have teeth if all countries in the world agree that they will buy Russian oil at this uh, set price. So the challenge for Western countries is that they need to get agreement beyond the G7, that's the United States, and let's just call it broadly the Euro-Atlantic community. They need agreement beyond there, because otherwise, uh, the Russians have indicated they won't sell oil at $40 a barrel to the West. They simply won't send any oil at all. And instead, they will redirect their oil to countries that will pay a price closer to the global market price. So for instance, India, China, uh, Middle Eastern countries, even Saudi Arabia, which of course is the world's largest oil exporter, has been importing Russian oil. So there are options for Russia in the event that the G7 don't secure the agreement of other countries to enforce this price cap. So over the last few months, Russia has, I take it, been exporting less oil and gas than they used to as a result of the sanctions. But how have the rising prices up to this point sort of balanced out the reduced ability to export? Yeah. So if we take the last six months, so since the beginning of the war, we can see that Russia's total oil volume, it's the physical volume of oil sold, has been slightly lower than it was, let's say, over the corresponding period a year before. So the the restrictions that have been put in place have had an impact on how much oil Russia is able to sell. And it's also resulted in a re-diversion, or a diversion, <laughs> I should say, of the geographic direction of Russian oil sales. In the past, their oil sales were dominated by sales to Europe. And over the last six months, this has shifted towards uh, the, what we might call the non-West. So we've seen increased sales to China, India, as I just said a moment ago, to other countries around the world in the Middle East, Turkey, and elsewhere. Now, Russia hasn't been able to sell that oil. I I mentioned a moment ago that Brent is selling at $95 a barrel at the moment. Over the last six months, Russian oil has been sold at a discount. It's generally fluctuated. It's not always the same, but generally between $25 to $30 a barrel off what the global price might be. But again, politics plays a big role here. The Russians are quite content, it would appear at the moment, to sell their oil for prices closer to, let's say, 70 or $75 a barrel to friendly countries, because they're still, by doing so, able to 
make a fair amount of money. If you, in the, the other factor that's important here is the exchange rate. In the early stages of the war, the Russian ruble experienced a very sharp depreciation. Now, because oil is exported and denominated in dollars, this meant that when you calculate it at ruble exchange rates, this oil was buying Russia a lot of rubles. So its ruble income went up in the early stages of the war. However, as the ruble strengthened due to uh, measures undertaken by the central bank and the Russian government, the, the, the volume of rubles that Russia can buy with its oil sales at the moment has diminished. And this is a key challenge for Moscow at the moment. Um, the ruble, after initially looking extremely weak and being a big source of concern, is now too strong. I think that the government in Russia would prefer a weaker ruble so that even when selling oil at a discount, it can still buy lots of rubles with it. And as a result of that, continue to finance the war and all of the other things the government needs to do to stay in power and to remain reasonably popular. So is the current, because the current strength of the ruble is something that's pointed out by more sort of pro-Russian voices as uh, evidence that the sanctions aren't having some sort of greatly diminishing effect on the Russian economy. But uh, are you saying that this sort of strength of the currency is a sort of artificial thing, that it's an artificial demand created by the central bank? It is artificial insofar as any impact or consequence of economic policy is artificial. You know, when the UK government or Bank of England decided to expand its balance sheet in response to the financial crisis of 2008 or coronavirus, that was an artificially created effect. And similarly here, Russia's central bank intervention is artificial in that respect insofar mm. as it is the result of purposeful action. So I think, as ever, the truth lies between the two different sort of camps on this. I don't buy the official Russian view um, that a strong ruble means that they're unaffected by sanctions. They are. And they've got a strong ruble at the moment, which under normal circumstances would mean that they'd be able to buy and import a higher volume of goods. But because of the sanctions that have been imposed on the export of particular goods to Russia, there's a lot of goods that they just simply can't buy. There's also a lot of companies that refuse to do business with Russia and a lot of companies that find it difficult to do business with Russia because of the financial restrictions that are in place on, on, on trading with Russians. So that strong ruble is there, but it doesn't do them as much good as I think the official sources would like. Um, so I, I certainly agree with, I think, the, the tone of the question there, which is it is created um, by purposeful action, but it's probably, it's probably gone too far. Uh, in terms of strengthening the ruble, too far for the good of Russia's fiscal position. As I say, I think they would much prefer to have a weaker ruble. And that's why over recent weeks, the Russian central bank has reduced its interest rates. Whilst interest rates are going up around the world at the moment, in Russia, they're coming down because they went up very sharply in the early stages of the war, as it looked as though they, they were trying to control financial panic. They've gone on top of that, and that has been a success. Um, but now they're becoming victims of that success. You spoke then of a difficulty in importing certain goods. And Politico recently had a report on the lack of microchips and other high-tech parts that was hindering the Russian war effort, their inability to source this sort of high-tech equipment. And indeed, recently saw that missiles and other things seem to be coming in from North Korea, which generally doesn't seem like an indication that things are going tremendously well from a military perspective. What do you make of the consequences of these sort of sanctions in goods and particularly these high-tech goods? 
Um, there's a number of different ways to look at this. One is to look at the impacts on the war effort, and the other is to look at the impacts on the economy more broadly. So I'll, I'll look at those two briefly and separately because they have different types of answers. If we look at the economy more broadly, the current, the existing sanctions regime denies Russia access to all sorts of technologies. So that includes semiconductors, microchips, etc., that could be used for military purposes. Um, but it also includes things that could be used for the aerospace industry, for the uh, operation of civilian aircraft, for instance. And parts and aircraft used in civilian airlines are also prohibited. Similarly, automobile components are prohibited. So there's a large swathe of the Russian non-military, civilian part of the economy that is affected by the lack of access to these these goods. Now, initially, that things look very bleak for Russia, and, and they are facing a number of uh, very serious challenges in this respect. However, as time has gone on, the government has permitted what's known as parallel imports, which is basically the illegal import of things like Apple iPhones from third countries that aren't covered by their warranties and aren't official sales, and therefore are more expensive. But this has resulted in the, the, the shelves in Russia's shops. It's beginning to stock up again. Again. They're not full of these uh, sanctioned goods, but if you've got money, then you can buy them. And that seems to pretty much be the picture at the moment. Now, there are some bigger problems for manufacturing firms, in particular in the automobile industry. Uh, Russia's got a very sizable automobile industry in which a lot of foreign firms like Renault and Ford were active. And those operations are now either curtailed or have been closed down entirely because they can't access a lot of these goods. So in the civilian industry, the the, uh, the picture is mixed. It's not quite as apocalyptic as it looked like it was going to be earlier on in the year. There has been some process of adjustment in Russia. But as time goes on, that process of adjustment needs to grow stronger. If it doesn't, then that's going to cause problems for the wider economy. If we look at the military, again, the picture is mixed. We shouldn't assume that because these sanctions have been put in place, because these controls on access to certain technologies are there, that that's going to have an immediate impact. You mentioned the North Korean imports. This allegedly, according to the reports, is artillery shells, and they're pretty basic ones, not guided or anything else like that. Um, so they're not going to North Korea for high tech, they're going to North Korea for low tech, um, because they're using a lot of low tech artillery in the Donbass on a, on a very high volume every day. If we look at some of the other weapons that have been used and examined in Ukraine, we can see there's a lot of what's known as commercial off-the-shelf technology used. Now, these are technologies that Russia will quite easily be able to access this year and beyond because they're technologies, they're microchips that are actually not cutting edge. They're not the most advanced semiconductors used you know, in, 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 in technology across the world. Actually, they're relatively medium tech, and they're ones that are freely available very often in just normal commercially available products like washing machines or sort of low-tech laptops or goods that can be cannibalized and then inserted into Russian weaponry. And the reason for this is that Russia's been under sanctions since 2014. So what they've, uh, it's certainly sanctions that affect its ability to build military products. So what they've been doing is basically building weapons that can rely on lower tech components because those lower tech components are a lot easier to access. If you think about your, you know, the types of phones that you use, all the types of laptops, and you think about the progress in the amount of power, processing power that takes place from year to year, you can imagine that even technology from two, three, four years ago is very often still good enough to create a weapon system that is still reasonably effective on the battlefield. So again, we should be wary of exaggerating the impact of these uh, sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. They, as a target of the sanctions, 
will find and have found ways of adapting to sanctions. And we see the evidence of that every day. On September the 5th, there's a story in Bloomberg claiming that they'd seen an internal report which talks about the future state of the Russian economy. And I'll quote from the article here, which says, the inertial one scenario sees the economy bottoming out next year 8.3% below the 2021 level, while the stress scenario puts the low in 2024 at 11.9% under last year's level. Now, I wonder if you could put in context what these sort of numbers mean, right? Like, what was the situation of the Russian economy going into this? How does this compare? Obviously, we think, well, the entire world's going through a terrible financial situation at the moment. So how how does this compare to what's going on elsewhere? Well, to look at Russia on its own first over the sort of more the longer run, we can make a very simple observation. That is the rate of economic growth in Russia between 2013 and 2021 was on average just above zero. (laughs) So it barely grew over that period. And the reason for that was that they had the price of oil dipped in 2014. That caused a recession in 2015. And then again, there was a a recession um, as a result of the coronavirus. Now, Russia's recession during the coronavirus was nowhere near as sharp as that in Europe or in the United Kingdom. But in the intervening period, its rate of economic growth wasn't very high either. So once you smooth that out and average it out, it, it, it barely ticked along. So you could call that a period of stagnation. So Russia's economy prior to the war had been stagnant for the best part of a decade. I think that's probably the simplest way of putting it. As a result, the living standards of the average Russian had actually got slightly worse. The amount of money that the average person would have in their pocket had diminished over that time, not drastically, but you know, the rush, the peak for um, per capita income for Russia was 2013. And it's actually gone down a little bit since then. So that was the position that they were in on the, the, on the eve of the war. Coronavirus had set them back in their efforts to try and reinvigorate the economy. And those efforts weren't really working very much anyway. So that's where it was on the eve of the war. As I say, it's coronavirus recession hasn't been as severe as that experienced in Europe, but it was comparable to what we saw in the United States. You know, it had a recession, it just wasn't as deep. But nevertheless, policymakers before the war were sat there thinking, what are we going to do to reinvigorate this stagnant economy? And then the war happened. Um, So what we're talking about here, so the the document that you're referred to that Bloomberg reported, I think, as I understand it, was a document produced by the uh, Ministry for Economic Development, whose job it is to look at longer term trends. And they always come out with these three scenarios. They do this every year, several times. And um, if we look at what what they're saying, there are two, I think, sort of points that stand out. Number one is, even under their worst stress scenario, with income being, let's say, 11% lower than it was at the end of 2021, that's still a lot better than most people, certainly Western and Russian analysts, thought was the case back in April. You know, in March and April, when the sanctions were first put in place, some people were talking about the Russian economy shrinking by as much as 15 to 20% this year alone, never mind at the end of next year. So I think the first point is, even the Russians in their sort of, um, you know, most pessimistic assessment here, uh, recognize that sanctions aren't quite as bad as they thought they would be. Having said that, what the other second point that stands out is that they see the impact of sanctions as taking place in a slower process. So rather than all of the costs being front loaded this year, what you're going to see actually is a slower, albeit shallower, 
period of economic contraction. And again, that's not a good position to be in after what was nearly a decade of stagnation. So there's no way I think of painting, I mean, I, I, maybe you think I have been slightly rosy there by saying it's not quite as bad as they thought, but what they thought at the early stages of the war would have been catastrophic. You know, to have had a stagnant economy, then suffer a recession of 20%, to wipe a fifth off GDP would have been something that didn't even happen to the United States during the Great Depression. So the fact that they've avoided that, it would appear, is cold comfort when you consider that they're still going to, let's say, uh, lose 10% of GDP over a slightly longer period of time from that rather poor starting position. So whichever way you look at this, it doesn't look good for Russia. So even if the short-term consequences for the Russian economy aren't necessarily quite as bad as even internal projections might have had it at the beginning of this war. And of course, everything is tremendously up in the air, right? I yeah. feel as though internally at the beginning of the war, it was expected that, you know, if Kiev was going to be rolled over in 72 hours, that was going to lead to an entirely different outcome than the one that we now find ourselves in. So we're very much in uncharted territories now. But it feels like the long-term effects of this are, are now something that we're starting to think about, right? Like you have sort of the seemingly the indefinite closure of Nord Stream 1, now theoretically as a result of sort of turbine failure or, or whatever it is, but realistically the extent to which you believe that is very much up to you. So what is the sort of future of this, right? It, it really does seem like there's no end in sight to a normalization of a relationship, principally because there doesn't seem to be an end in sight to this war and this war that does seem to be the sort of whims of one man. I agree with uh, with your general point there. I think to pick up, even from my last point that I made about the nature of Russian economic growth and the fact that it's not been great over the last 10 years, one of the reasons for that is that the Russians have been preparing their economy for conflict, right? So they've been building up savings rather than spending money on investing in public services and infrastructure, etc. And the reason they were building up savings was because they, I think, were anticipating that there would be a war. If you look at all of Russia's public official statements, strategic documents produced by its different ministries, its National Security Council, for the last eight years, they've been signaling that they expect a conflict with the United States and its allies, the, the collective West, as they would call it. So they've been anticipating this. And that's one of the, so one of the reasons why the economy hasn't been performing well. Now, the reason I mention this as context is that in Russia, traditionally, over the last 500 years, <laughs> so this isn't even you know, something <laughs> like, okay, this is the last 500 years, it's never been an economy where the government really cares that much about the average citizen and their incomes. Of course, in order to stay in power, you've got to be able to deliver some goods in that respect. But the bar is relatively low. Right, So your average Russian citizen is not going to get and is unlikely to expect to get as good an economic condition as, let's say, in Western uh, communists. And that's because Russia as a state has always been geared principally towards some form of conflict. It's the biggest country in the world for a reason. Its borders have constantly fluctuated throughout history. And the economy reflects that. Right, This is an economy where principally the government is concerned about winning in conflicts with its adversaries. That might take the form of outright military war, it might take the form of an economic war, but they've been preparing for this. So when I look at Russia and I look at the fact that Western newspapers are reporting that their you know, living standards are going down and it's not looking good, I'm uh, also sat there thinking, but they don't look at this in the same way that we do. Right. 
And therefore, they're going to be more prepared for this longer term um, rupture that you've just described. And I agree. I think this is a rupture now. In the earlier months of the war, when, you know, and a lot of this is contingent on developments in the war, but when it looked like there might be some form of ceasefire, there was, I think, a pathway to thinking that some of the sanctions might be reduced and the energy relationship could have continued largely in the way that it did. But the longer this goes on, this looks less likely. Now, if that happens, the Russians will get poorer. They're already getting poorer. They will get poorer too. However, Europe will get a hell of a lot poorer. And the reason for that is that Europe uh, and Russia's energy relationship, principally gas, but also oil, oil something that we can move around a little bit and get from elsewhere, but principally gas, has been built up since the 1960s, right? So this is something that's been around for 60 years. So six decades of dense, complex relationships in which Russian gas and Russian energy as an input to the European economy is essential to Europe's competitiveness. Now, the European economy more broadly has not been the fastest growing part of the world economy. Some have called it quite sclerotic itself. However, The extent at which it's been able to perform well has been predicated on having access to cheap inputs because Europe is a net energy importer. Mm. It's been able to get cheap energy from Russia. If, as looks likely, there's going to be this rupture in energy relations, that means Europe's going to buy it from elsewhere. If that happens, it doesn't mean just a recession this winter. It means a permanent reduction in the competitiveness of the European economy. In my view, that will mean a permanent reduction in income for Europeans. It's going to be something like a recession stroke depression, I think, for, for, for Europe, in particular in those areas of manufacturing and industry that are energy intensive. You know, a lot of that is built in northern Italy, Germany, northwest Europe. This is the real sort of motor of the European economy. And it's that part that's most reliant on cheap inputs. If they can't be replaced, we can replace them physically. That's not a problem. You can go and get an LNG shipment to replace the gas from the Middle East. But if you've got to pay three or four times what you were paying for the Russian gas, and suddenly your products are uncompetitive relative to US competitors or Chinese competitors. And that is the essence of what we're seeing now. This isn't about this winter. This is about the next decade and beyond. To close, are we basically in a situation where there is, you see sort of Europe trying to build up new LNG terminals, new storage facilities, things like that. And is it basically a race between the medium term diversification of the European economy away from the specifically Russian input? And basically, is is the, I suppose, hope from a European perspective that that will be possible for the European economy in a way that it will not be possible in the medium term for the Russian economy to diversify away from its position. Yeah, I think you can probably simplify in those terms. So for Russia, the challenge is where they're going to sell their energy. Now, they've already diversified their export markets for oil. India's buying more oil than it's ever bought from Russia before. So is Saudi Arabia, so is China. So in that respect, the Russians have made quite a lot of progress in six months. But for gas, it's a very different question because that dense relationship that I described is built on physical pipelines that have been built up over decades. So for Russia, it's very difficult for them to be able to switch their gas sales and say, well, we'll sell it to China instead. And there's reasons that for time constraints mean that we can't go into that, but it'll take a hell of a long time, a decade and beyond. But the challenge is similar for the Europeans. What they will have to do is build LNG terminals, 
that's fine. But as I say, you're still going to end up paying a lot more for the gas that you're importing. And therefore, that's still going to render a lot of your industry uncompetitive and result in a sharp increase in unemployment. So that's going to happen anyway, even if you do build the LNG. I think what's going to be the biggest challenge for Europe is if they can find alternative sources of cheap energy, if there could be an enormous investment in, let's say, green sources of energy that could successfully produce electricity and power generation at a price that was as low as Russian hydrocarbons were. I would imagine that that is an enormous if, not a big if, an enormous if. I mean, it would take, again, many years to make happen. So, I mean, for both, for both entities here, by the way, the United States is sitting much prettier it's, it's got a lot of energy and it's actually selling some of this to Europe at a higher price. So it's uh, benefiting from this particular predicament. It's the Europeans and the Russians who are losing out in this scenario. For my own assessment is I can't see how either bloc in this case is able to quickly replace either Russian gas in Europe's case or Europe as an export market in Russia's case in anything less than a decade, despite what politicians say. Um, realistically, it's going to take a lot longer and it's going to be hugely expensive for both of them. So actually what we're going to have, this perhaps is a, <laughs> a way to finish, is we are seeing an economic war between the two blocks at the moment. We are seeing the types of costs in monetary terms that you would associate with a military war, <laughs> you know, with factories being blown up and, and infrastructure being destroyed. Um, we are going to see hundreds of billions, if not trillions of euros of damage imposed on either side over the coming months and years, if things carry on as they are at the moment. And like you, I'm quite pessimistic. I don't think that things will get better. And therefore, this is something that people need to, I think, be prepared to deal with in, in the future. So sort of even the happier scenarios from a European perspective end with about a decade from now, us finding out what happens to a petrol station with an army once the petrol station goes out of business. Yeah, indeed. And in the interim, by the way, and this, <laughs> without wishing to sound like Dr. Doom, the problem is the more we disrupt the existing energy system, as we have been doing, the more prices go up in the short run, which of course means that the Russians have ended up with, you know, ample export revenues to carry out the, to finance the war. So, you know, the more we try and struggle away from Russian oil, the more we struggle away from gas, the higher the prices for those goods go up. Um, and I can't see a situation where, uh, where that changes too much in the near term. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but that's, that's my assessment um, where we are at the moment. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. I'm off to go live in an actual bunker. <laughs> Good luck. Listeners, thank you for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app and you can get every edition of The Bunker early plus merchandise and more when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese. 
with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>